Welcome. You are listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church in Granite Falls, North Carolina. We invite you to join us online or in person for one of our services. For more information about our church, please visit day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life. Good morning. You're going to have uh, only one more week to uh, worry about tempting uh, donuts uh, after uh, this Sunday. Uh, next Sunday, we have a, a, a special uh, Sunday, and I wanted to kind of uh, talk to you about that a moment. Uh, then on the other side of that, we'll finish up this series in, in two weeks. Uh, but we've got the opportunity to host a uh, Don Sunshine uh, Evangelism uh, Training Conference. Uh, so me saying that, don't let that scare you away and say, oh, no, they're going to teach about evangelism. That means I'll have to learn how to share my faith. You ought to already have the desire to do that. Amen? If you know Christ as your Savior. Amen? Okay. I just heard a mouse squeak a minute ago, and one, one person spoke up, I think. Uh, but a lot of our men had the chance to go to a Don Sunshine uh, evangelism training that uh, 106.9 uh, put on over in Morganton. Uh, maybe almost two years ago now. Uh, and um, we had been in communication back and forth with him. And he was going to be in, uh, in our state uh, down near uh, Huntersville on Saturday. And he gave me a call uh, a couple of months back and wanted to know if we'd be interested in him coming in and doing his training on Sunday. Uh, so that's what will take place. So let me kindly go over the details of that. At 8.30, he will teach his first segment of evangelism training. He will do the same thing at 10.30. Uh, now, Bill Hartley and, uh, and his wife were on vacation. Bill uh, called me and he said, please remember, promote what the men are doing. Uh, so next Sunday, uh, we want any of the men that are going to help cook uh, for the church uh, to attend the first service. Uh, and then during the second worship service, uh, you'll be helping to cook hamburgers and hot dogs. Uh, if you're someone that's not helping to cook, uh, you know, some of you ladies or whatever, and you're uh, at the first service and you leave, uh, come back uh, after our second service, come back and eat lunch with us, because after lunch, we're going to come back downstairs, and he'll go over his second part of his evangelism training. And then we're not going to do small groups or anything else uh, next Sunday, because we'll be here a longer period of time, so no small groups next Sunday evening. But please avail yourself to this training for all of it. Uh, he, he's a really uh, interesting guy, really energetic in sharing his faith. He, he's former law enforcement. Uh, some of you have maybe heard me joke about before. His real last name is Sunshine. That's not a stage name. He developed for himself. So when he was a cop in New Jersey, he was Officer Sunshine. You know, so I, I don't know if I would like to have had that name in New Jersey, you know, having to deal with people and say, I'm Officer Sunshine. Uh, but he's a neat guy. Uh, you'll enjoy him, the stories and everything else he'll tell. I guess he'll put it up again. But when we went through the first training, uh, showed a picture of him sitting on his motorcycle. He had a, a white Harley Davidson. He was sitting on and he pulled off on the side of the road and he hooked up a hairdryer and he's pointing his hairdryer like it was radar. And everyone was kind of hitting their brakes and everything else whenever they would uh, 
uh, come upon. But, but he's a really interesting guy, so please, uh, please avail yourself to that. I want to say just a word. You, you saw the video earlier about the North Carolina Missions offering. Uh, our church benefited from that 17 years ago because part of what the North Carolina Missions offering does is help, uh, help fund church planning in North Carolina. So needless to say, my heart's really sympathetic in that direction. I, I was gone this past week, Tuesday, uh, Wednesday, and Thursday, helping teach new church planters uh, down at Fort Caswell. So uh, us giving to this offering, our goal is $2,000. And us giving to this offering not only helps with new church plants, but it helps with what uh, our Baptist men do across the uh, state. Also, in uh, disaster relief, uh, going out and helping after storms like the last one that came through and, and things like that. So it's a really worthy offering. So I hope you will uh, give to that uh, over and above your tithe. And hopefully we'll make our goal of, uh, of $2,000. Uh, guys, um, I don't know how many of you looked ahead, uh, but I counted. We about got our normal crowd here, uh, so I, I don't know how many of you looked ahead, or if you remember what I said last week uh, that the topic today is religion and politics. That's exciting, isn't it? You know, aren't you glad you came? You know, for for, for religion and, and politics. But but I kind of figure this. You, you've made it through me talking about why our culture is so bad. Uh, you made it through me talking about uh, racism and uh, talking about abortion and, and spending two weeks on uh, on sexuality where we dealt with gender and kind of everything else under the sun uh, in those messages and the to- hot topic of homosexuality last week, and you're still here. So maybe I won't scare you off today uh, with religion and, and politics. I will tell you up front, I'm not going to be telling anybody how to vote. That's not what this is about. What we are going to do is, is more or less see, I think, how, how, how religion is being uh, misused some in politics. And we're also going to look at how I think people have twisted our, our Constitution and the Bill of Rights and, uh, to, to apply it against the church. And that was not the original intent uh, that was put there. And that's kind of what we're going to focus upon. Uh, however, this issue before us, it, it's kind of a, a pat excuse for some people. Been several times over the years I've been in the ministry that I was trying to share my faith with somebody, and you might have got this response before. Have you ever had anyone tell you, well, wait, wait, wait a minute. Uh, I need to tell you that I don't talk about religion or politics. You ever had anybody to tell you that? And a lot of times that's really just an excuse to get you off track from trying to share Jesus with them. Can, can I recommend if someone ever tells you that, what you ought to do? Just agree with them. Say, hey, I don't want to talk to you about religion either. I want to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus. Because religion is man trying to reach up to God, trying to be good enough to get to heaven. And Christianity is God reaching down to man through Jesus Christ. So just agree with somebody. If they ever say, wait, hold on a minute. I don't want to talk about religion or politics. Say, that's, that's good. I don't want to talk about religion either. You know, I'll talk about Jesus. And that's, that's completely different than talking about religion. Another reason that I think we need to focus on topics like this is that I'm afraid if we're listening, if you're paying attention to the news, I'm afraid it's evident that religious freedom in America is under attack. It's under attack in places across the world, but it's under attack and even disappearing in some situations. Consider some things that have happened over the last few years to where uh, Christian bakers uh, or, or Christian photographers 
uh, turned down doing a, a wedding or a cake or, or photography uh, for a, for a same-sex marriage. And because they did that, people wanted to bring uh, equality issues to bear against them and, and take them to court. And I'll read to you some specific information about a, a court decision later in the message, but take them to court because they were trying to just exercise what they believed you know, what, what their faith was. And they weren't doing it unkind. They, they weren't trying to do it in a judgmental way. They, they were just kind of respectfully saying, well, we, you know, we don't do that. We won't do that because that kind of violates what we believe. So we need to wake up to that. And we need to wake up to the fact that if we don't stand for religious freedom, uh, guys, some of the things happening in other parts of the world will wind up here. That there are people being killed for their faith in other parts of the world. You recognize that? That that really happens? That there are people who maybe have been part of another faith, maybe Islam, and then they come to faith in Christ, where even there have been situations where even their own parents had killed their own child because their child came to faith in Jesus. So the persecution that exists out in the world will eventually get worse here, the persecution we already have now, if we fail to recognize and try and stand up for what our rights are supposed to be in the United States of America concerning our, our freedom. People of all faiths are persecuted in the world. But according to our State Department, Christians are the most persecuted faith group in the world. The, the U.S. State Department says that Christians are persecuted in more than 60 different nations in the world today. And another issue I want to deal with today is this. It's also evident as I listen to a lot of the political jargon, it's also evident that politicians are misusing religion or Christianity for their own devices. In other words, I think sometimes politicians like to give lip service to God without giving life service to God. Now, they're not the only ones guilty for that. Regrettably, a lot of us may be guilty for that. To give lip service because they think it'll get them more votes and not be given the life service. In other words, not allowing what they say they believe to impact their actions and impact the way they live their life as, as they should. So that being said, we're going to approach two main themes and uh, guys, I'm sorry I'm not reading the text just yet, uh, but all this series has been a little bit more of a topical type series when I read scripture. I think I'm doing it expositionally and, and telling you what the Bible believes uh, and what the Bible says, rather. Uh, but um, in order to address these themes, we kind of have to bring up some big topics and then show you what the Bible has to say. So we're going to look at two main themes today concerning religion and politics. Here's the first thing we're going to talk about, the misuse of religion in politics, the misuse of religion in politics. Uh, some people act like God is an American. Have you ever talked to anybody like that? I think a lot of people in America act like that. They, they, they feel like God is an American or, or God uh, has to be on our side. Uh, and God is going to defend America and take care of America, and that means God is against other people. But the, the, the biblical truth is this, God, is, is this, guys. God is not of any nationality. You recognize that? God is a creator. 
I mean, the, the Bible, we've already looked at this several times in this series, but it says in the beginning, we've looked back in Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God's not an American. God's not even a Hebrew or, or a Jew. God brought that nation into being. God, God is the one that's all powerful. And to think like he's an American is to think erroneously. To think that God is on our side and he's against everyone else who's not American is not sound theological thinking. Now, that being said, I believe God does help nations sometimes. I believe God will help nations that are interested in following him or are interested in serving him. I I think God has blessed America for some of those reasons. I I think God blessed America because people moved here to begin with, seeking religious freedom because they were under persecution, uh, maybe by the Church of England in England and in other countries. So they moved here seeking religious freedom. So I think God blessed America in that direction. I think God God's blessed America because we have been the nation that's probably sending out more missionaries across the world than any other nation. So I think God has blessed America for that reason. But at the same time, guys, I think we have to consider what Psalms 9 in verse 17 says. If our nation or any nation decides they're going to forget God and write God, God off and us quit applying the Judeo-Christian principles that have been so evident in our land, look what the Bible says here. The wicked should be turned into hell. But notice the second part of the verse. And all the nations that forget God. Guys, that's Bible. And that means we ought to be concerned about our our nation slipping away from the biblical basis that it seems like we've been founded on for so many years. Consider this. Some people say, well, yes, God's an American. God's going to protect us. And God will never let someone come in against our nation of America. Read your Bible for a minute. And then look at how many times God raised up heathen nations, wicked nations, evil nations, and he used them to chasten his own people, the Jews, his own people, the Hebrews. And if God would do it with them, God will do it with America if we decide we're going to walk off and forget God. And forget applying Bible principles to this nation and to our lives. So don't act like God's an American because he's, he's not, guys. He's, he's God. You understand that? He's, he's the creator. And as we're thinking about the misuse of religion and politics, I've noticed this, that some politicians act like God's on their side. They, they act like they've got God in their back pocket and God's on their side and, and God's not on the other political side. And while it's biblically true that God established government. We're even told in Romans 13, 1, I'll read it in a moment about being in subjection to governing authorities and that no, no authority or no power exists without God allowing it to. That, that doesn't mean that God's on one side or the other. Romans 13, 1 says every person is in, to be in subjection to the governing authorities for there's no authority except from God and those which exist are established by God. But that biblical truth there does not mean that God is on the side of any politician or any political party. But a lot of politicians use the lingo and act like and talk like God's in their back pocket or God is on their side. Like I've already said, a lot of politicians give lip service because of the other motives that they have to God, but they're not really giving life service to him. I've heard politicians do this. I've heard politicians invoke God's name in part of a speech and in the very next part of the speech say some really hateful, mean-spirited things that don't sound like Christ at all. 
You know, so it's like they're wanting just to use God for their own purposes. I've heard politicians claim that their faith is very, very, very important to them. Now, guys, listen to me. I'm not trying to influence you or tell you how to vote uh, whatsoever. Uh, someone say, well, if you look at the back of your pickup, I can tell you got a sticker back there. That's my pickup. That's not me standing here preaching in the church, okay? I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for. But I am going to tell you the truth when it comes to moral issues. So right now, there's one politician in America that's running for president who's a mayor of a major city in America. And he, in an interview, was saying, man, my, my faith means so much to me. My faith is very, 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 very important to me. But at the same time, that particular politician is a professor homosexual and he's married to a man. I, I, I have a hard time trying to figure out how is your faith really, 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 really important to you, and yet you think it's okay to live your life in direct opposition to what the Bible has to say. He even went on to say that if you've got any problem with me being like I am, you need to take it up with God because God made me like this. No, he didn't. We dealt with that last week. But I think politicians... For whatever party might be, and, and I see both parties doing this, they want to act like God is on their side because they understand there's a certain element in our nation that's going to vote in that direction, and just maybe they can sway some of the religious vote to vote for them. If they keep saying, uh, well, God's on my side, God's on my side, God's really important to me, my faith's really important to me, and yet they're not applying the Bible to their life. And I think we need to wake up to that. We need to understand uh, and not be misled by the statements people might make. I read this verse last week, and I think I need to read it again now. And it applies not just to politicians. This applies to all of us guys. But, but look what is said here that Jesus said in, in, the, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23. If anyone, does anyone include you, me, every politician, anyone, huh? If anyone would come after me, in other words, if anyone's going to say they're a follower of me, if anyone would come after me, let him, and I capitalize this intentionally, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Those words, the tense of those words by Jesus are in the imperative tense in the Greek. In other words, when Jesus said that, Jesus wasn't saying, this is a good idea. Jesus wasn't saying, this is just good head knowledge for you to have. Jesus, when he said, if you're going to follow him, you're to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him. When Jesus said that in the imperative tense, here's what that means. Jesus meant for us to do it. He meant for us to deny ourselves. Guys, following Christ is not about self-promotion. It's about self-denial. Following Christ is about crucifying ourselves. In following him, in allowing his ideals and his principles to be what guides our lives instead of us living for our for ourselves. So I, I'm just telling you, you need to be on guard about that because just because someone names the name of Jesus doesn't mean they're following Jesus. Amen? And a lot of politicians are, are using religion, I think, for that end. The truth of the matter is this. The scriptural truth is that God is in charge And we're to be on his side instead of acting like God's on our side. In other words, the Republican Party's not in charge. The Democratic Party's not in charge. The Independent Party's not in charge. 
No one out there is in charge. They might act like they are. They might think they are, but they're not. The issue is not, is God on the side of this political party? Is God on the side of this politician? The issue is not for us. Is God on my side? The issue is this, guys. Are we on his side? Are we allowing him to be God in our lives? Are we following him? Let me use the story out of Joshua to illustrate that. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13 through 15, the background of this is that, that Joshua and the children of Israel are getting ready to cross over and, and they're going to go over and they're going to face this great wall city by the name of Jericho. And, and Joshua's kind of pulled by the side and I think he's reflecting, you know, about the, the, the battle, what's coming and everything else. So here it says, now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and he saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, are you for us or for our enemies? Now, I think the reason he asked that is that this person he sees over here with a sword in his hand was probably the greatest specimen of a warrior he's ever seen. I'll explain that in just a minute. Look at the response. Neither, he replied. But as a commander of the army of the Lord, I've now come. And it tells us that Joshua fell face down on the ground in reverence and asked him, what message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, take off your sandals, the place where you stand is holy. And Joshua did so. Now, now here's a picture. Joshua's waiting to go over in this great wall city that looked like it might be really hard to defeat. And he's thinking about it and he's plotting out maybe what's going to take place. And he maybe didn't fully know everything yet and how God was going to give the, the, the victory. And he's there considering Jericho and he looks up and he sees this great specimen of warrior. Some people say it's Gabriel. Let me give you the Lynn Parsons inspired translation. Okay. I'm just joking. I think it's a pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. I think he looks up and he sees Jesus standing there. Jesus with a sword in his hand. And he asks Jesus, are are you on our side or are you on their side? You see, that's kind of the issue that's taking place in our culture and even with political parties. And notice the response of Jesus. Jesus says, neither. He said, I'm not for any of you. More or less, he said, I'm here to take over. I'm the one that's in charge. He said, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Don't be worrying about whether on your side or their side. You need to be on my side. That's more or less the thought that's being given there. We need to be on God's side. It's not about claiming that, oh, God's on my side or God's for my political party or God's an American or whatever. Guys, God is God. Amen. And we're to be on his side. He's the one to be in charge. See, Jesus is not some religious entity that it's like you're out on the playground and you're picking a team and you look over in there and you say, you know what, I think I, I, think I like Jesus. I think I'll let Jesus be on my team. The way we used to choose things on the, on the playground. Hey, Jesus chooses you. You don't choose him. And, and he's the one that, that you need to be concerned about being on his team. Guys, the truth of it is this. Jesus is the side. Jesus is the team. Jesus is the commander. We're to be on his side, not act like Jesus is on our side. 
Look in the Old Testament, then we'll go to the New Testament. Look in First Chronicles 29. Both riches and honor come from you. You rule over all. In your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. In other words, God is the one that's in control. We're to be on his side, not act like he's on our side. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 19, look what the apostle Paul writes inspired of God. He, talking about Jesus, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him. And catch this part, we miss it sometimes, and for him. He didn't come around to be our Santa Claus, guys. He created everything and it's for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Notice this, that in, what's the word there? That in some things, what's the word? That in everything, he, talking about Jesus, might be preeminent. In other words, our focus is to be on him. He's in charge. He's to have the preeminence. He's to have our worship. He's to have our dedication. It doesn't matter what political party is in charge or whatever, guys. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that deserves our worship. He's the one that deserves all of our laudation. He's the one that deserves all of our attention. Our focus needs to be upon him, not some type of political environment in our world. We need to focus upon Jesus. Amen? Regrettably, there's been some tragic actions that's taken place in our world to force religion or force Christianity upon others. Let me give you a couple of examples. And the reason I'm bringing this up is, guys, we're not called to do this. Roman Emperor Constantine eventually legalized Christianity. He did more than legalize it. He set it up as though it was the state religion for Rome in that day and time. And if you were not a Christian, it was hard to do business. If you're not Christian, you were looked down upon from the Roman Catholic viewpoint of Christianity. So people were persecuted because of that. How many ever heard of the Crusades? We're going to go down in the Middle East. And we're going to go down with force, and we're going to take back everything, and we're going to force people to believe. Now, there are some other political things taking place, but guys, we're not called upon to force anyone to believe in Christ. There have been other wars that have been fought under the guise of Christianity. If you want another picture of that, since we're talking about religious freedom in the world today, consider the Islamic approach. The Islamic approach is this. If you do not change from whatever your faith is and believe in Muhammad, then you're an infidel and we will kill you. That's their gracious practice of religion. They're they're teaching a forced type of religion. The, The strange thing about all of that is that I don't see it in the Bible. Think about Adam and Eve for a minute. Consider that God created mankind with a free will. God created Adam and Eve, put them in a perfect environment, and and told them that they can enjoy everything in that creation that God had made for them in that perfect garden, except eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So in other words, God allowed them to have free choice. Have you ever thought about this? God is God, and if God so desired, he could have so segmented off that tree 
with the knowledge of good and evil that they could not have had access to it. Could he not have? Because he's God. But he did not because he created man with a free will. One of the underlying reasons for that is this. If we did not have a free will, Satan would point at God like he tried to with Job and say, well, see there, they can't help but serve you because you didn't give them a free will. But God did give us a free will. And when we, out of our free will, choose to worship him and choose to follow him and choose to trust in Jesus, that's what brings glory to God. It wouldn't bring glory to God if we were like robots. So in the very beginning, he, he created us with a free will. Think, think about the practice of Jesus for a minute. I, I don't see any time in the ministry of Jesus that Jesus forced anyone to believe in him. Instead, here's the practice of Jesus. Jesus proclaimed truth. Jesus performed miracles. Jesus presented evidence to his deity, but he let people make up their own mind whether to believe in him or not. Jesus even allowed people just to walk away from him, and they did several times instead of believing in him. He he never forced people to believe. In in Revelation, we have in in, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20, let me read it uh, to begin with. It says, Behold, and here you've got a picture of Jesus. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and, and he with me. Now, first of all, people misapply that all the time. That is not talking about a lost person opening up their heart to Jesus. That verse of scripture is talking about Jesus knocking on the door to get into one of his own churches that he already owned, that he already bought with his shed blood. And yet they were kind of forgetting about him. And Jesus stand at the door and knocked and said, hey, let me back into that congregation. Let me back into that church and we'll have fellowship together. So here's the picture of that. Jesus owned that church. Jesus bought and paid for that church with his blood. That church was part of his body. But even though that church belonged to him, Jesus would not force himself into that church. He's standing at the door and knocking. He is a spiritual picture of him saying, let me in. Let me have my way in your life. Let me have my way in your church. So guys, if Jesus would not force his way into a church that belonged to him, that was bought with his blood, he's not going to force his self upon any lost person and force them to believe in him. He wants them to. He longs for them to. He stands with open arms, but he's not going to force it. You'll see why force is wrong more in in just a minute. Looked like to me that Jesus even taught his disciples not to be forceful, not to try and force people. Let me give you a couple of instances. Luke chapter 9, verse 53 through 56. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, look here, James and John, they're really compassionate guys to get along with. They said, Lord, do you not want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? (laughs) And look what Jesus said. Jesus didn't say, yeah, they they rejected me, so bring fire down. That's not what he did. What he did was this. He turned and he rebuked them and then went on to another village. He gave evidence at that place, and then he goes on to another evidence, to another village to give evidence at that place. Didn't force them. You can kind of see that when Jesus sent the disciples out in Luke chapter 10, verse 5 through 11. Whatever house you enter... First say, peace to this house. In other words, guys, when, when we're trying to go forth and serve Jesus, we, we need to have the mindset of peace. We need to have the mindset of, of blessing to other people. So peace be on this house. And if a son of peace is there, 
Your peace will rest upon him. But, but if not, he'll return to you. In other words, if they reject you and reject the message, you've still got it. You can go on somewhere else. But he says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide. For the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Notice what he says here. Heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into the streets and say, even the dust of your own town that clings to our feet, we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. Nowhere in that is Jesus sent the disciples out on a mission trip. He never tells them, force people to believe. He tells them to go in, look for a person of peace, try and share peace with them, try and minister to them, try and love them, try and share the truth with them. But if they reject you, don't force it. He didn't say to force it. He said, hey, just wipe the dust off your feet and go on somewhere else. Now, he's not literally meaning that. He didn't mean go out there in the street and say, you people are bad, I'm leaving. I pastored another church and followed a pastor that had done that. <laughs> he was visiting a, uh, a church uh, that was behind, uh, visiting a house that was behind the church. And he went in on a visitation night trying to witness to them and everything and the family just kind of rejected it. And you know what the pastor did? He got him, stomped the dust off his feet, wiped the dust off his feet and stomped out of the house and left. Well, get him to Jesus next time you see him. See, it's, it's the, the attitude that Jesus is conveying here. You know, you're, you're not forcing it. You're presenting it. And if they don't receive it, go on somewhere else. Augustine, an early church father, said this. When force is applied, the will is not aroused. Guys, if you can force somebody to do something, you might can hold a gun on them, put them in prison, whatever. But if you forced them to do it and their will wasn't there, it didn't matter. You've not forced them into anything. You've not forced them into authentic faith. David Platt said this in, in his book, Counterculture. Human dignity necessitates personal discovery, the opportunity to search for truth apart from threats, to settle on faith apart from force, to come to conclusions apart from coercion. In, in other words, what he's saying is this. Authentic belief requires authentic choice by the individual. We are not called to force anybody to believe in Christ, but we are supposed to present the gospel to them. We're supposed to love them. We're supposed to minister to them. We're not supposed to force it. So in, in the first theme today, the first topic today, we're just looking at kind of how, how religion has been misused by, by politics. By The second part of it, I want us to notice how, how religion has been attacked by the misapplication of governing laws. The misapplication of government laws against religious freedom. Religious freedom is a rare commodity in our world, whether we recognize it or not in America. Guys, the gospel response for us as Christians must be to defend religious freedom for, listen to this, all faiths. That doesn't mean we adopt what they believe. That doesn't mean we take what they believe and what we believe and we, and we marry it together to come up with some, you know, weird type of, of ecclesiastical religious body that can include everybody no matter what they believe. But it does mean that we have to stand for religious freedom for all people, and here's why. 
If we don't stand for religious freedom for all people, eventually we will lose our own religious freedom also in America. Doesn't mean we agree with the other faith, but we have to stand for religious freedoms because it's disappearing across our world. I'll read some scriptures in this section, but guys, I'm going to dive in in just a minute to our, to our Constitution and to the Bill of Rights. Because I'm telling you, people are taking the Bill of Rights and they're misapplying it to stand against Christianity and against the church in the world that we live in, right within our own nation that's taking place. Before we get there, though, let's get a global perspective of of religious freedom under attack. See, we live in the Bible Belt. I say that loosely anymore. We live in the Bible Belt. It's almost a joke. We live in the Bible Belt of America, so we may not feel like there's persecution. Because you got up this morning, and you could pray this morning, you could read your Bible this morning, you rode to church freely this morning, you walked in here freely this morning, you can walk out of here freely. At least you can for now. Across our world, people are suffering for their faith. Not just Christians, but people of other religions. Some oppressive governments arrest and even execute Christians. Other religions persecute people of different faith than their own, such as Muslims persecuting Christians. On average, get this, guys, on average... And we don't get a report from everybody. We don't get a report from North Korea. You recognize that. We don't get a report from China. But on average, the best stats that we have, on average, 100 Christians are killed every month around the world for their faith. Did you hear that? 100 Christians. That's more than half of the people sitting here right now are killed for their faith across the world. And while that sounds shocking, you need to understand that's not new at all in our world because listen to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read some of the last part of Hebrews 11. Take time and read all of it because it recites the heroes of the faith and and their choices and what they went through and what they faced. But in the second part of verse 35 through verse 38, the Bible tells us some were tortured, refusing to accept release. In other words, they could have gone free if they would just said, Yeah, I don't really believe in Jesus. That was just me fooling around, you know. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so they might rise again to a better life. No matter what the world does to you, but Jesus that we trusted in took his life back up to show that we have everlasting life through him. Amen? Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Guys, that's the heritage of Christianity. Whether we like to think about it or not, and regrettably, it's still the heritage, not just in biblical times, but in the day that we live in. And just because we live in a relatively free society still yet, We can't ignore our brothers and sisters who are being persecuted and killed for their faith in other parts of the world. Guys, one reason we can't ignore it is that the Bible teaches, the New Testament teaches, we're all part, every believer is part of the body of Jesus. And Jesus is the head of the body. 
Look at what the Bible tells us there about that in 1 Corinthians 12. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. We are all Christians all across the world. We're part of the same body. And since we're part of the same body, if that brother or sister in Korea or China, wherever it might be, if they're suffering for the gospel, we ought to be concerned about that. We ought to be suffering with them. We ought to be praying for them. I mean, let me illustrate it for a minute. You've got one body. How many of you have ever been walking through your house at night and you have a child that was loving enough to leave like some building blocks or something out on the floor? Especially some Legos. Those things are sharp. And you step on it. Or you're walking through your house and, and you get a little bit closer to the furniture than you thought you were and you, and you stump your toe on the edge of the furniture as you're walking through your house. And even though it might be just your little toe, your body knows about it pretty quick, doesn't it? Because you hurt. Guys, in the same way, doctrinally and spiritually, we ought to hurt for other believers that are being persecuted across the world. We ought to feel the pain. We ought to be suffering for them. We ought to be praying for them. And if we fail to stand for religious freedoms for all people in this world, the restriction of religious freedom will come to our land and, in, in fact, is already coming to America. So let's focus a little bit on the U.S. Constitution since people want to twist it so much in the Bill of Rights. The U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, promises freedom of religion. That little word of is pretty important. It doesn't promise freedom from religion. There's even an organized group within our country that's trying to promote that. It's a group that's trying to promote freedom from religion. We don't want any religion in America whatsoever. We don't want to be confronted by it. We don't want to see your Christmas. We don't want to see your Easter. We don't want to be confronted by it in any way whatsoever. But the freedom of religion, whether our government recognizes it or not, was not given by our government, the freedom of religion is given by God. When he made us with a free will, when he made us in his image, and yet our forefathers understood that in that day and time. And through the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights, which was passed by Congress on September the 25th, 1789, and ratified on December the 15th, 1791. There's, there, there's 10 amendments that form the Bill of Rights. Here's amendment number one. That means it's pretty important if it's number one. Amen? Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press, or the right of the people peacefully to assemble and to petition the government for a redress of grievances. There's a popular phrase that people want to use anytime we're trying to bring our Christian faith into the public arena, especially to the political arena. And it's this little phrase, wait a minute, we've got the separation of church and state. That phrase is nowhere found in the Constitution. It's nowhere found in the Bill of Rights. 
It's a phrase that was coined based upon what we just read a moment ago in the First Amendment of the Bill of Rights. Nowhere is there anything saying that the church shouldn't be in the public arena, that our faith shouldn't be in public life. You might call freedom of religion the first freedom because that was given to us by God, as I said a moment ago. And our forefathers realized that, and that's why they wrote this First Amendment. And it has a fourfold purpose. So let me walk through the fourfold purposes right there in it. Number one, to assure there's no government-forced religion in America. Why were they concerned about that? Because many of the people fleeing to America were fleeing the persecution of the Church of England because the Church of England had turned the Church of England into the government religion. And they were fleeing from that to come to America. So as they are riding our rights, they want to be sure that at no time the church would establish a state religion where everybody has to believe that particular version of faith. Second reason for it was this, to protect religious freedom in America. Because it said there should be no laws prohibiting the free exercise of religion. What the First Amendment does not mean is this. It does not mean that Christians or the church should stay out of the public arena or out of government or out of politics. What it does mean is that the government shall not rule over the church and the church shall not rule over the government. That's what's meant by it. It doesn't mean keep your opinion out of politics. Keep your Jesus out of politics or out of the workplace. That's not what's meant by it at all. Third reason is this, to assure the freedom of speech, which, by the way, the freedom of speech includes religious speech. Amen? Doesn't specify. And it was also to protect the right to peacefully assemble, in other words, including religious assemblies just like this, in assemblies that decide, you know what, the government's messed up right now and we need to get together and we need to talk about that and we need to let the government know it's messed up and they need to change some things. That's what that right is, is, is about. See, the, the Constitution of the United States begins with this. A lot of you already know it. What's those words that it begins with? We, the people. See, the government was designed for the people. It wasn't designed against the people. It was supposed to be for the people, by the people. The Declaration of Independence has started this grand freedom experiment that we call America. Has these words at the beginning of the second paragraph. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. Do you see that? They have to have our consent to govern us. 
that whenever any form of government becomes destructive to these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute a new government. Now, I'm telling you, our government, no matter which political party it is, does not necessarily like those words because what we have just been told is this. If our freedoms are encroached upon and that type of persecution begins to affect freedom in America, that we even have the right as Americans to raise up and say, you're done with, you've messed things up too much and form a new government that guarantees our freedoms. That's what we're guaranteed here. That's what we're told here. It is the right of the people to alter and abolish it and to institute the new government, laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as seem most likely to affect their safety and their happiness. In America, we're to have the freedom of religion, not from religion, but we also are not to have a forced religion. Could sum up a lot of what I've just talked about. The misapplication of laws of equality are being used against religious freedom in America also. Already in this series, we focused on cultural issues like gender, marriage, sex, homosexuality. And in our culture, there's a misapplication of equality issues that we need to understand are not logical and not correct. We must understand that ethnic identity and sexual activity are two different things. They have taken sexual preference and turned it in something as though it's like an African-American being born an African-American. Or a Native Indian being born a Native Indian. And they've turned it into it being given the same type of of equality rights as racial equality. Now, guys, biblically, that's wrong. Logically, it doesn't make sense if you'll really be logical about it instead of just adopting what you're being told by culture. And it ought to frighten us for these reasons. There have been Christian photographers, as I alluded to in the beginning of the message, and Christian bakers, that make cakes for weddings and other cakes, who have been accused of not applying the rights of equality when someone comes to see them and they want pictures made at a same-sex union marriage or they want a cake baked for a same-sex marriage union, so-called, taking place. In all the instances that I've studied, the religious photographers or the religious bakers were not mean-spirited. They weren't nasty. They weren't being judgmental. They weren't being homophobic. They weren't being any of those things. They just, based upon their faith, kindly said that we decline to provide that service for you. They were taken to court because they were being accused of inequality. They, they were taken to court and they were being accused of misapplying what people view in the wrong way as equality issues in our world. 
Can I read to you one of the court decisions of a photographer who respectfully turned down a same-sex marriage union? Here's what the court decided. Compelled by law to compromise the very religious beliefs that inspire their lives. That was one of the statements. It went on to say they are free to think, to say, to believe as they wish. They may pray to the God of their choice and follow those commandments in their personal lives wherever they lead. But the court went on to say, in the smaller, more focused world of the marketplace. Will you stop and think about that statement? (laughs) In the smaller, in the smaller, more focused world of the marketplace. Marketplace is pretty huge, isn't it? In the smaller, more focused world of the marketplace of commerce, of public accommodation, they have to channel their conduct, not their beliefs. So see, they're saying your beliefs and your conduct need to be different. So as to leave space for other Americans who believe something different, this is the price of citizenship in our country. Now, 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 let me stop and ask you something. What happened to the Bill of Rights that we just read a moment ago? What happened to the right of religious freedom for that photographer? Or for that bakers that have been charged? We've got a Christian photographer. I'll not call it the name of the business because I don't want to bring anything their direction at all. But we've got a Christian photographer that's a member of our church, more than one. But we have one that happens to have their own venue. And uh, here's, how, uh, he's, here's how they have dealt with it. They have erected a huge cross on the grounds of the venue. <laughs> and that tends to kind of turn people away by itself so far. But one day they may be challenged. Guys, what happened with us being told that we have religious freedom as a citizen guaranteed by the Bill of Rights? And you see, that story is just one example. That that photographer was accused of being judgmental and intolerant. And all they did was turn down a wedding event based upon their religious beliefs. Now, now let me ask you a question. Why is it that any time this is an issue... I've never heard it be an issue with anybody except Christianity. Have you? When's the last time you heard of an Islamic cake baker or photographer in the news because they refused to do something for a same-sex or they refused to do something for a Christian? Have you ever heard of that? I've I've never heard that. Here's how skewed our world is, especially our, our political agenda. The the same people who are in favor of all the same-sex marriage rights and homosexual rights, making it just like it's a a racial equality in our land, the same ones that fight for that also seem to be pro-Islamic in this day and time. I don't see how you put those two things together because those people of the homosexual community, if they went to those Islamic countries where those people come from, would be killed for their behavior. Have you ever heard the politics make strange bedfellows? See, it's not even logical anymore, guys. It's just about what, what people's agenda is and how they can twist it politically to go the predetermined way that they've decided things ought to be. See, the, the problem is this. 
there's a huge confusion when it comes to the word tolerance. And we're going to talk about tolerance briefly just for a minute. And that's part of the issue here. Because, you see, everyone wants Christians or people of faith to be tolerant of them. But they don't want to be tolerant of people of faith. Let's talk about that just for a minute. The misunderstandings in in our culture concerning tolerance. Here's a definition of tolerance, in case you've never read it. (laughs) Dictionary, not mine, the dictionary. Tolerance is the ability or willingness to tolerate something, in particular the existence of opinions or behavior that one does not necessarily agree with. Now, that's what tolerance means. But you would think the way our culture applies it, tolerance means this. Tolerance means that everyone has to agree with everything. And we have to accept the practices of everyone. But in our world, in our culture, here's the issue. Tolerance is a one-way street. We want you Christians to be tolerant of what we believe, but we're not going to be tolerant of what you believe. And if you'll look at the definition of tolerance, that means that they're saying they're upset with us because we're being intolerant without recognizing their statement against what we believe makes them intolerant of what we believe. Does you understand the logic in that? See, we live in a messed up world where terminology is all skewed and and messed up. Tolerance does not mean everyone agrees on everything. Tolerance, by very definition, means this. We won't all agree on everything. And yet we can tolerate each other and we can live together without killing each other and maybe even be friends because we can tolerate the differences that we have. Think about it like this. It depends on how narrow you draw it down. I promise you that not everyone in this room right now believes the exact same thing the exact same way. I promise you that. I know that, in fact. But you know what we can do if you're a Christian? We all know in who we've believed in. Amen? We all know who our faith is. Our faith's in Jesus. So while we may have some nuances there, we can still love each other and we can be family and, and, and we, can, we can practice our, our, our faith together and we can tolerate some differences that are there. Guys, that's the very essence of, of, of what tolerance means. But you'd think by the way our culture practices it, tolerance means that everybody has to believe the exact same thing. And that I have to adopt what somebody else believes into my belief system. And they have to adopt what I believe into their belief system. And that's not what tolerance means. Tolerance means there will be differences. There will be disagreements. And that's why we're having to tolerate each other. But that's just so messed up in our, in our culture. Tolerance doesn't mean conformity. Tolerance means we can respectfully disagree. It means there can be dignity of the other person's views and tolerance. And tolerance of another person's values or beliefs doesn't mean that I have to accept their views. And if you're accusing another person of being intolerant, you're practicing intolerance yourself, whether you realize it or not. So, so what's the gospel response to all this? What should the gospel response be to to religious freedom, persecution taking place in our world? I'm going to close just by reading some verses to you. I'll make a couple of statements. You might not like what I'm about to tell you because in our flesh, when someone is opposing us and against us and persecuting us, it's kind of like, I'm going to pay you back. I'm going to get you for that. 
It's not what the Bible says for us as Christians. Matthew chapter 5, verse 10 through 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. He's just more or less saying, hey, Jesus saying, I was persecuted. The prophets were being persecuted. You might as well expect it yourself. And when it happens, rejoice. Don't retaliate, rejoice. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16 through 22. Again, he's talking to all these disciples he's sending out. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. In other words, we need to use wisdom in how we relate to other people, but we need to be innocent. We don't need to be, do things that we can be accused legally of wrong. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over the courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you'll be dragged before the governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. And when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are going to speak or what you're going to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. I've heard people read that. I've heard people read that as an excuse for not studying before they get up to preach. I'm glad I had the homeless professor I did. He said, if you believe that, God will fill your mouth with cotton when you get up to preach. <laughs> That's why I study about 20 hours a week for this thing that happens on Sunday morning. Brother will deliver over to death, and the father is child. And children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death, and you'll be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. First Peter Chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. For to this you've been called. In other words, this is part that you've been called to as a, as a Christian. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. Jesus suffered. He left us an example in suffering. And here's what he said. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he not, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Here's what that says. Jesus was on the way to the cross. He was doing what God the Father had called him to do. He was being abused by people, but he commended that over to the future when it will be judged correctly and taken care of. Guys, if Jesus, who was God in the flesh, who could have judged it rightly, did not, you and I have no business trying to judge it righteously and repay other people. What we need to do when the world persecutes us and mistreats us is commend it to the Father. He'll fix it in the future. Amen? He'll make it right in eternity. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition with thanksgiving present your request to God. So when we're facing difficulties and situations and even persecution, we need to pray. And it says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 13 through 16. You're the salt of the world. If the salt has lost its taste, how will its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all that's in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. 
So what is our gospel response in a dark world? What is our gospel response even when we're being persecuted in this world that we live in? Here's our gospel response. You and I are to be salt with a flavor of the society with the gospel of Christ. And you and I are to be light in the darkness of this world. It doesn't matter what persecution comes. We're to keep being salt and we're to keep being light because that's what God has called us to, to bring the light of the gospel into all the darkness. Even if we wind up living in a culture where Christianity is being persecuted like it is in Korea and China and other parts of the world, we are still to be salt and we are still to be light no matter what the government that tells us we're called to be salt and we're called to be light david plant said this in counterculture may we talking about believers may we realize that privatized christianity is no christianity at all for it is practically impossible to know christ and not proclaim him now let me stop for a minute i'm a meddle i understand what time it is right now but you need to hear this more importantly than you need to eat lunch. If it's impossible to know Christ and not proclaim him, why aren't you proclaiming him? Why aren't you telling more people about Jesus? Why aren't you leading more people to faith in Christ? And he goes on and says to believe his word when we read it in our homes or churches and not obey it in our communities and cities. David Plant is saying what our culture wants us to do, shut the door of your house, read, pray, keep it there, keep it at church, don't carry it out in the world. He said that's impossible for Christians because, guys, that's not what we're called to. We're called to carry Jesus in the gospel wherever we go, irregardless of what government might say. And yet we're told this. We're told we should not mix religion and politics. That sounds almost spiritual when people say it. But here's the real intent of the phrase. When someone says don't mix religion and politics, here's what they actually mean. Don't talk to me about your faith. Don't bring your faith into the public square where I can see it. In other words, hide your faith when you're outside of your place of worship because we have separation of church and state. And guys, we cannot allow that to stand because the separation of church and state is too important of a concept to be misused. Here's the way it's being used. It's being used as a tool for silencing opposing views. That was not the purpose of separation in church and state. It was exactly the opposite. Freedom of speech. Freedom of religion. See, in America, we're to be a free marketplace for ideas, and that includes religious ideas and religious truth. This free marketplace of ideas means that we won't all agree. This free marketplace of ideas doesn't mean that we must adopt the beliefs and practices of others. It means there will be major points at which we disagree, but that's a part of freedom. And as Christians, we have to learn to be respectful of others. But at the same time, we have to be true to God, true to Jesus, true to what the Bible says, but we can do so and still be respectful of others. 
Our being respectful of others does not mean we adopt a revelatoristic approach to religious truth by saying, hey, as long as they sincerely believe what they believe, it's okay. And here's why. You can sincerely believe something and be wrong for all eternity. We must tell people the truth, especially the truth of the gospel, but do it with the attitude that Jesus wants us to display. Now li- listen to this because you're going to think, well, man, that's simple. But, but, but our, to our world, it's not. Jesus cannot be the Son of God and not be the Son of God at the same time. You understand that? Jesus cannot have died for our sins and not have died for our sins at the same time. Jesus cannot have risen from the dead and not have risen from the dead at the same time. Do you understand why I'm saying all that? Guys, here's the thing about truth. Here's a foundational thing you need to park in your mind and use. It's kind of called apologetics if you've ever studied that any. Something cannot be true and untrue at the same time. Becky and me were coming out of a restaurant. We had, uh, for some reason, we were in Hickory, and we went to eat breakfast uh, at the, the snack bar in Hickory, and we were coming out, and I looked at the back of a van, and, and it had a sticker on it that said this, uh, truth has no agenda. And I understood what they were saying to begin with and everything, but the more I thought about it, we got in the car, and I told Becky that and she hadn't seen the bumper sticker, but I said, well, it said truth had no agenda. And I said, I understand what they're saying, but then I said truth does have an agenda. Truth is to be the truth. Amen. All the time. And as believers, we believe that Jesus is the way. The word the means exclusively the way in the Greek. He's the way. He's the truth. And he's the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. And we have to believe that and hold to that. But we also have to give room for what other people believe, be respectful of them, try and show them the truth, try and lead them to Jesus, but not force them, guys. We must stand for religious freedom in our world. During this invitation, I'm going to ask you, if you know Christ as your Savior, to stand right where you are, and I want you to pray for our nation. I want you to pray for religious freedom in America. I want you to pray for Christians that are being persecuted across the world. I want you to pray for religious freedom across the world. And as believers are standing and praying to this invitation, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, I'll be here at the front. I'm not here to coerce you or force you into anything. But I will tell you this. Jesus stands with open arms and says, Let whosoever will come. And if you're a part of that whosoever will, we invite you to come this morning. Then it's time of invitation. Please stand. Father, God, help us right now as we continue in prayer in just a moment. To be bold and be willing to stand for what we know is truth in the gospel. Father, help us as a group of believers here. As we continue to pray 
together for a few minutes. Father, we pray for those facing persecution. Father, we pray for our nation. We pray for truth to be applied to the culture of our nation. For it's in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this sermon audio production from Day 3 Church. We pray that it has ministered to you. For more information about our location, service times, or other sermon podcasts, please visit us online at day3church.org. Day 3 Church, experience a new day in your life.